Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, if you have a Bible, open it to 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning as we're working our way through this beautiful letter of Paul to a young pastor, Timothy. We find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 2, and we're going to be covering the first seven verses of chapter 2. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, I would love for you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the rack in front of you. Uh, if maybe you're just invited, you've been invited by a friend and you're not yet a Christian and you're just investigating Christianity, we would love for you to take that Bible as our gift to you. Maybe you're a young Christian and you don't have a Bible yet. Use that Bible. Take it. It's our gift to you. Maybe you're a seasoned Christian that has forgotten your Bible and you look at the one in front of you and it's a little nicer. No, no, no. This isn't for upgrades. All right? This is for people that maybe don't have a copy of God's Word. But regardless, we're going to have the Scripture up on the screen. I think it would be really helpful. I say this every week. I know that. But I think it bears repeating. I think it would be really helpful for you to have a copy of God's Word open, sitting open on your lap, for you to see God's Word for yourself. We want to be intentionally, unashamedly, slobbering Bible people here. And we want to have it open. We want to read it. We want to extol it. We want to pray it. We want to preach it. And we want to obey it with one another's help. There is nothing more powerful than a person that has God's word open with a heart ready to obey it. So let me read these first seven verses and then we're going to work our way back through it. Now, my wife tells me that I am at times prone to exaggeration. <laughs> and that laughter was a little too much there, brother. We didn't, you didn't need, I didn't need that much agreement. I think she is right. And so I say this with a bit of trepidation. But these seven words, or these seven verses that we are going to read, this passage in 1 Timothy 2 has the potential to be life-transforming for a church and for an individual. The truths that are embedded in just this short little paragraph that Paul wrote some 2,000 years ago to a young, fearful, anxious pastor, pastoring a difficult church in the context of a hostile environment, has enough power when seen and seized by one of God's people to be transformative, to change the trajectory of a young person who may be on the pathway towards accumulating riches and trinkets and possessions for themselves. It has the power to change that affection and reorder it to give their life away for the sake of the gospel. It has the type of power to change an ingrown, subconsciously self-absorbed group of people who care more about their own comfort It has the power to redirect their affections and cause them to be aflame for the beauty of the gospel proclaimed amongst all peoples. And so as we read this verse, as we reorder our affections, as we pray to God, may the Holy Spirit who breathed this world into existence, who takes dead hearts and makes them new, 
who calls people to give their lives away for the sake of the glory of God. May he breathe afresh in this room today and do beautiful things among us. May he cause Christians to have their hearts melted afresh for the glory of God. May he put steel in the spines of his people who are struggling with sin as they realize afresh that Christ has reconciled them from the futile ways that they have inherited from their forefathers. And may people that are in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus, may the beauty and the supremacy and the glory of God and his work through his son on the cross so consume So overtake your heart that the glory of God in the face of his son Jesus Christ would be irresistible to you and you would have no other option but to bow down in glorious response to the glory of God in his son Jesus. So with that, let me read 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 7. I'm going to give you the outline up front just so you know. I think that in this text there is an exhortation. There is... A motivation, and then there are some implications. So the exhortation, the motivation, and the implications. Let me read 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Father, we thank you for your word. May you teach us things that we do not know. May you make us into things that we are not. And may you bring glory to yourself through our time together as we look at your word. And we are completely dependent on all of these things. Completely dependent on you and your spirit working among us to exalt the work of your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we dive into this text, let me just reorder and remind us about the purpose of Paul's letter to this young pastor. So what had happened was Paul had planted a church in this city of Ephesus, and it was in like western modern day Turkey. And this city, Ephesus, was full of idols and pagan worship, and Paul, in one of his later missionary journeys, brings the gospel to Ephesus. And the gospel completely disrupts the culture of the city. In fact, it caused these men who were who were idol makers, like they literally made little statues of the false gods, the false Greek gods that the people were worshiping. It caused them to abandon their trade of 
making little bobbleheads for Greek goddesses, and to come and burn down the precious metals that they had used to make these idols and, and to really give their proceeds away for the glory of God. And it caused a great uproar and riot in the city. And in the context of that disruption that the gospel brought to Ephesus, Paul then moves on and leaves this young man, Timothy, to pastor the church in Ephesus, to lead this group of people, the church at Ephesus, to which he would later write the letter to the Ephesians. And the whole point of Paul's message to Timothy is he is trying to get Timothy to see the purpose and the plan that God has in the local church. In fact, we, we get a real clear declaration of this. If, if you want to write down Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10 and maybe read it later, we see the plan and the purpose of God in giving the local church and creating the local church and establishing the local church. He says, he says something incredibly universal and global. He says that it's through the local church that God has determined to manifest his glory to an onlooking world. So what's at stake here in Paul's instruction to Timothy is more than just mere instruction on, you know, what type of leaders the church should have, or this is how you should pray, or this is the type of doctrine that you should have, or this is how you should handle the vulnerable among you, like the widows and orphans that we'll read about in chapter 5. This is how you should handle money. Yes, there are specific instructions that Paul gives to Timothy. But all of it is in the context of Paul encouraging Timothy to establish this little community, this little kind of colony in this dark world because God has determined not just to save individuals by opening their eyes to the beauty of a son Jesus, but to then put them in a community called the local church so that collectively together they would be a kind of countercultural display to an onlooking world. And through the life of the local church, as they live together in the context of this foreign, dark, hostile world, they would become a kind of picture of life in the kingdom to come. Now we know that every local church, certainly this one, to varying degrees, fails in that mission. But God has promised to complete his work through the local church. I think this is epitomized very well, and it's, it's clarified in this quote that a brother in this church sent me this week, and it comes from an article written by a man named Russell Moore, and he is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He's uh, uh, a current guy that is doing wonderful work in engaging our culture with Christianity, and this is what Russell Moore says about the local church. Listen to this, and I think this is the heartbeat behind Paul's instruction to Timothy. He says, a local church... With all its ridiculous flaws, <laughs> listen, I love that, because 11 years ago, we planted this church basically out of nothing, and uh, I mean, look, look, this church has some ridiculous flaws, and I can trace them all back to some deficit in my leadership over these past 11 years. But yet, listen to what Russell Moore says, even then, with all its ridiculous flaws, is an unveiling of the mystery of the universe. It is a colony of the coming global reign of Christ, 
a preview of what his kingdom will look like in the end. Friends, that's what we're doing here. This is more than just Sunday in the South. And that mystery, that unveiling of the mystery of the universe that Russell Moore mentions there is hearkening back exactly to what Paul's message to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3 is. And this mystery has now been revealed. And the revelation of the mystery is that Christ is for all people, not just the Jew, but the Gentile. And he's commissioned Paul to be a proclaimer, an apostle of the gospel to all peoples. And so God intends to preach his gospel. God intends to evangelize the nations with the life of the local church being the hub of that impulse. So with that, let's look back at our text and first look at, look at the exhortation. And I think we see it in the first two verses here. This exhortation that Paul gives Timothy as to how life in the local church should look. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. Paul says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings and by the way I just got a comment there this isn't really a point that I want to make I just got such a kick out of this it made me so happy this week as I was studying I like to read dead guys like I like to read what dead guys have written because if you've been dead for centuries and they're still printing what you say uh, you know hashtag like a boss right that's that's solid and so one of my theological heroes John Calvin the great Protestant reformer, said about another one of my theological heroes, Augustine, who lived back in the 400s. So Calvin in the 1500s, writing about Augustine in the 400s, Augustine looked at this text and he looked at these three words that Paul groups together. That I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, like he's putting these three words together. What is, what is, God, what is Paul saying there? What does he mean? And Augustine got real technical and looked at how each of these means something different, you know, and he wrote this big treatise on it. And Calvin, about a thousand years later, reading Augustine, said what Augustine wrote about that is silly. <laughs> I just love that. I'm like, yeah, thank you, Calvin. And what well, you guys don't get that, but someday somebody, so there's going to be some young guy out there that's going to listen to what I said, and he's going to say, what Brad said about that is silly. And so I take great comfort in that even one of my heroes, Augustine, had something silly to say about the Bible. What Calvin is saying here is that God, through Paul, is just trying to stir up this idea that the church should be a praying community. Thanksgiving should be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So what is the exhortation that Paul is giving to this young pastor, Timothy? He is urging him in the context of when the church gathers in their corporate worship, that the church should be a praying community. In fact, the the answer to this, this exhortation and we'll have it up on the screen, is that the exhortation is that the church is to be a praying community that is distinctly Godward for all peoples. So when we gather, we should be people that pray, that pray for the nations, that pray for all kinds of people. And notice what Paul is telling Timothy to do when the church gathers. Notice the types of people that he is encouraging him to pray for. Not just all people, 
but for kings and all who are in high positions now to understand the gravity and that maybe the shock that this might have been to Timothy's system, you need to understand who the kings and people who were in high positions were at the time that Paul was writing this letter to Timothy. Very possibly the emperor of Rome at this time was a man named Nero, who a few decades after this would be written would become so wicked in his persecution of Christians that he would persecute and kill Christians and use Christians and burn them and use their bodies as fuel to light the lamps in Rome. He was a wicked man who skinned Christians alive. Virtually every leader in the Roman Empire, every leader in the city of Ephesus would have been incredibly hostile to the message of the gospel at this time. And Paul is telling Timothy that the church, when they gather, should pray for these types of people. This, I think, and we'll hit on it in a moment when we get to the end and we look at some implications for our life, this has much to say about how we as Christians in America, as American citizens, should posture ourselves towards hostile government officials and politicians and presidents and governors and whatever else. The point here is that in the context of the gathered church, the life of a Christian and the life of a local church, we are to be a praying community that is distinctly Godward, praying for all peoples. And notice there that I don't think the accent on verse 1 where he says that you should pray for all people, he's not saying whatever the population of the earth was at the time that this letter was written, he's not saying that you should pray for every single person that is alive. But clearly the context here is that Paul is saying that you should pray for all kinds of people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that as we live as a city within a city, God's city within this dark city of this world, our hope is reoriented afresh that God has given even wicked governments to be in charge and we are to pray that God's will might be done through them so that we can be freed up to go about the mission of preaching and spreading the gospel for the glory of God. We should pray for all types of people. We should be the type of church that not only prays for all types of people, but for which all types of people are welcome, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So that is the exhortation. But now we move on to the next few verses, 3 through 7, where we find the grounding, the motivation for this exhortation to be this kind of community that prays big, global, expansive prayers, evangelistic prayers for all people. So let's read verses 3 through 7, and we'll, we'll see the motivation that Paul grounds this exhortation in. Let me read verses 3 through 7 again. So pray this way, he's saying, for all people, be a Godward people, why? This is good, verse 3, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, and what is this that he's referring to? I think he's referring back to this mission, the fact that 
Jesus has died for all kinds of people. Because of that, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, and I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Okay, so let's, let's peel back some layers here and discover what Paul's motivation is for exhorting the church to be a praying Godward community that prays for salvation, for God's work in all manner of people. And to understand his motivation, we need to do a little bit of work on some phrases there that that might trip us up a little. So what does Paul mean specifically? To understand his motivation, what does Paul mean by verse 4, where he says that God, verse 4, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? Well, before we answer that question, I think we need to understand the context of this particular, uh, this particular statement or exhortation by Paul. There were very likely teachers in the church at Ephesus who were Christian teachers of a, a Jewish descent who were very likely teaching that salvation, God's work, was still just for Jewish people. And they were, they were Jewish people that had come to faith in Christ, but they hadn't quite realized that the mystery through the ages has been revealed that God desires all types of people to come to him. And so there was a kind of elitism or exclusivism in the church. And Paul was aware of that. And he is trying to combat that by telling these people, no, no, Jesus didn't just come for his people, the ethnic Jews, but he has come for all people. So we should pray for all people because he desires for all people to be saved. So Paul is fighting against this thread of Jewish exclusivism that was running in certain pockets of the Ephesian church. But that doesn't really answer the question. What does Paul mean by all people? Well, I think we have to answer that question. When we answer that question, we need to think of, of, of two options. One option is that by all people, Paul meant every single person on the face of the earth. So that would be meaning all Without exception, everybody. Or the second option, which I think fits the context better, is that Paul is saying that God desires all people to be saved. And he's thinking about it in the context of the same way he used all people in verse 1. He's not talking about every single person, but he's talking about all types of people. Meaning people from a Jewish background, Gentile background, rich people, poor people, people in high position, people in low position. In other words, all kinds of people that you as a praying Godward community should have confidence that God has opened up, as Hebrew says, a new and living way And that Jesus, the gospel, is not just for Jews or middle-class Americans in the South that were raised in the Bible Belt or for people from the West. That the gospel, the work of Christ, is for all kinds of people. And I think we see that in the context of just these seven verses. So if we look again. In verses 1 and 2, I've alluded to it already, that the all there in verses 1 and 2 is referring clearly to all kinds of people. And then if we look at verse 6, where it says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Well, if we take all there, meaning to be all, every single person on the earth, then we could potentially run with this verse and say that everybody 
everybody's sin has been paid for. If Jesus died as a ransom for all, without exception, then that means that everybody, regardless of where they stand with Christ, regardless of what they do with the claims of Jesus, has been ransomed. Well, some people mistakenly take this verse that way. But friends, we can't come to that conclusion because we read the rest of the Bible that says that clearly those that reject Christ on that day will be separated from him and will be sent to hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so how can somebody who has been ransomed be separated from God? So the clear implication is that what Paul means here by all is not a guarantee blanket salvation, a universalistic look at just everybody kind of, you know, everybody that's basically kind of in the end, it sort of works out, all dogs go to heaven, let's just be happy and kind of go off, you know, humana, humana. No, clearly what he's saying here is that Christ has died for all types of people. The work of Christ is sufficient for the sins of all humanity, for all who would ever trust in Christ. But it only is applied, it only comes to bear on the life of those implicit in this text and the rest of the Bible, those that have turned and trusted in Christ. So friends, don't read into this just a kind of universalism. We still must preach the gospel and we can go with confidence because God has guaranteed that Christ is for all manner of people from whatever background they come. And shouldn't that give us hope? And friends, that's no, that's no, that's no surprise. God has been doing this from the beginning. In fact, let me, let me show it to you in Scripture all the way into the first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, we see God's call to Abraham where he selects this one man who's wandering around in the desert, not knowing God, not seeking after God, and God by his sovereign grace comes and pours out his grace on this man named Abram, and he says, you're going to be my man, and I'm going to make a nation for you, through you, for me, and listen to the purposes of God making this nation through uh, Abraham that becomes the nation of Israel. Verse 1 of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. That then later on, as the Old Testament develops, becomes the Israelites, the Jewish nation. But listen to God's purposes for the Jewish nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that, that's a conjunction, you know what's coming now. Those of you that grew up in the 70s on school, Schoolhouse Rock, back when cartoons only came on on Saturday mornings. Kids these days have it so easy. That's a conjunction junction. And when you see a conjunction, you know you sing that song because you want to know its function. So you say conjunction. Come on, sing it with me, kids. Conjunction junction, what's your function? Right? So the function of so that is God is connecting in this text the purpose of creating this people through Abraham so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see God's purposes 
for all of the people, all types of people. The Israelites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Americanites, right? The Alabamianites, the Georgiaites, the, the Californiaites, all of us. It has been God's plan from the beginning to send Christ to bring together a people that would be a kind of colony in a dark world so that through this people he would display the surpassing worth of his glory and grace. That's what he does with Israel in the Old Testament and he continues that mission with the church in the New Testament and it all finds its culmination in Christ who now is the mystery of God revealed, the Messiah, the Savior, not just of the Jews or of a specific group of people, but for all all, for all that will turn and trust in him, for all that will believe in Jesus. And God in this text to Timothy is guaranteeing that the nations will come to him. Friends, this should put, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself now, but I can't resist. This should put fervor and fuel in our evangelistic efforts. I read from the beginning of the Bible. Let me just prove it to you all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation uh, chapter 7. We see this beautiful text where what God has promised is exactly what comes to be on that last day in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation. And when you read the word nation in the Bible, don't think of political nations like the United Nations and the 200 or whatever nations that we have, sort of political boundaries. But that word means literally ethnic groups, people groups. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people groups in the world today. And there are thousands of people groups that are still unreached. That means there's more work for us to do. Because God has guaranteed that there will be a great multitude from every nation, from every people group, from all tribes and peoples and language, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So friends, what is the motivation here? The motivation... I want you to see this, and this will be up on the screen if you're taking notes. The motivation for us to be a praying Godward community, an evangelistic colony to an onlooking world, the motivation is that Christ has purchased a people from every tribe and tongue. So we can pray towards that end because God has deemed that it will be so. Do you see that? God has purchased a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And this should put zeal in our spines and, and a fire in our belly. Now at this point, let me just take a little aside and deal with a potential theological trap that some people fall into. They look at a verse like this and they say, well, they say, wait a minute now, Brad, I know what perspective you come from and you see... God's utter sovereignty in all things. And yet it seems here in verse 
4 and 6 where it says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And it sort of might make you back away from the certainty of God's plan and the sovereignty of God in all things. And let me just say that regardless of what you think about what all people means there, whether or not you buy my explanation that I think all people in the context of this text means all types of people, not literally every single person, I think you need to wrestle with some implications of this text. If you reject what I just said about how all people means all types of people, kings, paupers, Jews, Gentiles, black people, white people, brown people, all types of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And you say, no, no, I reject that, Brad. I think that when the Bible says all people, it means that God is sort of open-ending things and it's all people. Let me just say that the implication of that is you have then a picture of God who is reacting. That you have this picture of Christ's work on the cross as merely making salvation possible, but not actually accomplished. And then you, you have then the decisive final sort of decisive act in salvation being something that we do rather than what God has done. And I think we all have to admit if we, if we look at this verse where it says that God desires all people to be saved, regardless of what theological camp or perspective we come from, we, we all must admit that God must desire something more than that that he has stated here because if God has desired all people to be saved, but in fact all people do not actually come to the knowledge of the truth because we realize that there is a real thing called hell and eternal punishment, then God has desired something even more than he desires all people to be saved because he's desired to leave some people into their sin in some way. And so this causes many Christians to get into these endless debates where they argue over the extent of God's sovereignty in salvation. Friends, I don't want us as a church to be hamstrung by those debates. I want us to see the promise and the certainty of God's declaration to his people that I have a people that I have purchased from every tongue and every nation and the only way that they will come to faith is if you as a church don't sit back and be comfortable grumpy Christians but if you will be the type of church that is a prayerful Godward dignified peaceful group of people who see this truth and let it put fire in their bellies and you become a gospel mobilizing outpost a little colony for the glory of God to the nations now let me just prove it to you by the apostle Paul's life okay second Timothy just one one book over from the book that we're in he writes another letter apparently Timothy didn't get it all so he had to write him another one you ever had to tell your kids something twice well be encouraged Paul did too. <laughs> Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy. And I love the, I love the tension wrapped up in this verse. And, and I want us as a church to embrace this tension. And I want it to fuel. I want it to put fire in our bellies. I want it to rouse us from being lazy, self-absorbed Christians. And I don't want us just to be people that get in theological debates about the extent of God's sovereignty. I want it to fuel our on, as we look at nations and people and people in our city, 
that do not know Jesus. And I want us to see the guarantee, and I want us to see what it does in the life of Paul. So 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Verse 9, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound, he says. And in verse 10, listen to this paradigm that Paul plops right down in the middle of our theological controversies. Verse 10, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I'm sorry, Paul. I don't think you quite understand the theological debate that has been raging for centuries. You see, don't you see that if you believe that God has an elect, that that is going to somehow dampen evangelism? But you're saying here, Paul, that, that God has a people and that you are willing to endure everything for them. Paul, sit back, chill out, enjoy your favorite songs, go to your Bible studies with just Christians, and kind of settle into a grumpy, miserable, middle-class Christian existence. Clearly, Paul, that's what you should do if you understand the sovereignty of God rightly. (laughs) I'm being sarcastic, can you tell? Paul saw God's promise that he has ransomed a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And Paul does not go to Starbucks and debate with his friends about the peculiarities of who all is. He says, God has a people, so I'm willing to be shipwrecked, beaten, and persecuted Because that all will not become all unless I endure everything to get them there. Do you see that? God never, listen to this Christian, God never separates his glorious sovereign end from his ordained means. And he calls the church to be the people that supply the means to bring about his guaranteed end. And I want to live in that. I want to stand on that. And I want that certainty to not cause me to to slack off into laziness, but I want it to put fuel in my heart for the passion and the fervency of the gospel proclaimed in all the nations. Amen? All right, hopefully you're excited about that as well. So, four implications from this glorious truth that we're to be a praying, Godward people for all nations. And that the motivation for this is that Christ is our mediator, that he has ransomed us. This powerful word, ransom. What are the implications for this? Well, one, clearly, is that we should pray big, bold, confident, Global prayers. So we pray every Sunday we gather for the nations. We prayed this morning for Eric and Ellen Peters. This evening, people from Crosspoint will come and pray big, bold, confident global prayers. There's nothing wrong with prayers for our family members whose washing machine is broken or whose dog is sick. We should take everything to the Lord. 
But there's something kind of diseased about a Christian and a church that prays little, only small prayers for small things. One commentator wrote, I think his name is D.A. Carson, a modern-day New Testament scholar, said that he was visiting a church, and all the prayers were just for little things. And it was kind of like they were praying to a village god, lowercase g, to answer their little village prayers. And friends, make no mistake, we should pray for everything. You know, we should be completely dependent on God for every breath we take, for even the little things. But what Paul is commending to the church here is that we should pray big, global, expansive prayers. Where do missionaries come from? Where do great movements of God start? They start in dusty little places. What, was, what, did, what did Russell Moore say about local church? Little places like Cross Point with ridiculous flaws. And that God uses our little prayers that are big and bold and courageous because God has promised that he has ransomed the people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He uses us to be part of what mobilizes the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so maybe there's a, a young person in here, a young couple in here that is thinking that their life is taking this direction. You just want to keep working at the company, get your retirement so that you can get an RV and you can tailgate at Auburn or Alabama every Saturday from when you're 55 and on, okay? And maybe right now God is saying to you that there's more to your life, that you need to be willing to endure everything for this people that I have ransomed. And God is calling you right now to be like two young couples in our church. One is now giving their life away for the gospel in Central Asia in a city of millions of people where there are a handful of Christians. They left the friendly confines of this congregation so that they would go across the world to this particular country that has virtually no gospel witness. And another couple that is right now raising funds to go to Kosovo to give their lives away to a completely depressed culture that has a very dim light witness for the gospel. Maybe there is a young person, a young couple in this church that right now, even now, this verse is grabbing and seizing your heart and it is reorienting your affections away from yourself and to the glory of God amongst all the peoples of the earth. Right now, do not let the sun go down on this day, unless you pray with your wife or your husband, unless you speak to somebody, unless you begin to fan into flame what God may be doing in your life. Do it. Do it now. Do it before you leave this room today. Maybe you're not just a young person. Maybe you are an empty nest retiree, and you've been looking forward to golf and trips to Destin, and there's nothing wrong with Destin or golf. Unless it becomes the consuming fire for your heart and siphons you away from this beautiful, all-expansive, most important of truths. And maybe God is calling you to divest yourself of all of your assets and give your golden years to the glory of God amongst the nations. Wouldn't that be glorious? 
that you would push all of your chips to the table in this last decade and a half or two decades of your life and say, it's yours, God. I am willing to endure whatever for the sake of your promise that you have ransomed the people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Maybe, maybe, thank you, sister, at least I got one agreement here today. Maybe you are a young soldier in the army and you are beaten down with the darkness of the culture that you find yourself in. And maybe this text needs to reorient you. Maybe in your 10 or 15 years in the army, or maybe you've just been in for six months and you're like, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? This place is wicked and dark. I know that culture. It is wicked and dark. And it can, it can dumb down your joy and your zeal. And maybe this verse needs to put steel in your spine because you realize even the most wicked of infantrymen that you might be standing in front of, that God, even from people that seem so far away from him, he has put you in front of that person, no matter how far gone they are. And you may be the one that is God's ordained means to bring about the end because he has ransomed a people from every tribe and tongue. He's ransomed not just good people, he's ransomed wicked people. He hadn't ransomed just church kids, he's ransomed complete jerks who are absolutely as far away from God as anybody can be and he has sent you young man to be more than just a platoon leader or a squad leader he sends you as a missionary because he has ransomed a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and you right now you need to stir up affection in your heart for the glory of God maybe you are a young mother staying at home raising a couple pagans And you need to realize that people are not born Christians. They are born sinners. Now, I hate to wreck your cute little 18-month photo right now. But I don't care if you're a good little kid and a good little... I don't care if your last name is Evangelista and your little pastor's kid. The reality, biblically, is that we are born separated from God, hostile to Him. Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sins, by nature objects of wrath. And you, young mother, are on the mission field of motherhood because God has sent you to preach the gospel, to be a missionary, for the sake of your child, who I think we should believe with great confidence because of his goodness and causing that child to be born into your family, that the gospel is believed and preached, that he is ransomed, Lord willing, that child in eternity past, and he has deemed, oh, what a privilege. Like, what a privilege. He has deemed that you would be the missionary sent to that child. Oh, dear sister, I, I want you to have a deeper, more profound, and eternal sense of motherhood, right? Not just whether or not your baby's getting the right nutrition and whether they can play Beethoven when they're four, but whether or not they know Jesus. And God has sent you to the doorstep of that heart for the sake of his sovereign end in the life of that child. Nothing is more critical than that, right? And dad, 
You're not just sent to make money so that that kid can get hitting practice baseball lessons when he's nine. Okay, one thing, I need, to, I need to break your world down right now, but he's not going to the major leagues, okay, first of all. And his eternal destiny does not ride on whether or not he gets a scholarship. And you need to model humble Christ-like manhood in front of that young man or woman because you are the God-ordained means to bring that child, Lord willing, to faith in Jesus. Friends, what could be more glorious? What could be more important? And then we collectively live as a church that lives in this way. I've spent way too much time on number one. Number two, we should be, as an implication of this praying community, we should be good citizens remembering our true citizenship. (laughs) I understand that it is hard to pray for certain politicians and certain political candidates. But Paul is telling Timothy to create in the church an atmosphere where people like Emperor Nero are prayed for and that you thank God even for wicked authority. How should this inform us? I think Christians oftentimes put way too much hope in the political process. Shame on us Shame on us if somehow there is more pop in our step, if there is somebody that is politically conservative in office, as if sort of that will usher in God's kingdom. Friends, this world is broken regardless of whether there is a Republican or a Democrat or a Christian or a non-Christian in office. We should live in a way that we say to an onlooking world that joy and happiness and God's victory does not come about merely by the election of officials that agree with us politically, but by the coming of the only one true king. And we need to thank God and we need to pursue. We should vote. Some in this room will be called to political engagement. But we need to do so in such a way that we do not make an idol out of political power. And we should be good citizens who realize that we are a colony within a foreign land. And that ultimately we are ushering in the kingship of Jesus who is coming again. I could say much more on that. Let's keep going. Thirdly, in implication is we should take the gospel to all peoples because God has willed it. I've already talked about this. If God has willed that all kinds of people will be saved, then we should go. We should send missionaries from this church. Those of us that do not go should send. Those of us that cannot send financially should pray. We should be the type of place that is a kind of cauldron that brews, a kind of pot, a stew that brews the type of people that go to their neighbors and the nations. And we shouldn't just send missionaries to Central Asia and Kosovo and dark places. We should send them to neighborhoods in Columbus that don't have an adequate witness of the gospel. We shouldn't just try and grow bigger so that we become a better, hipper, cooler church. But we should send out young men to preach the gospel in corners of our city that don't yet have an adequate representation of the gospel of Jesus. 
We should send young men like Will Hawk someday out to plant or revitalize a church. We should send Robert Wards and others and young men that will come and be trained in gospel ministry at this church, not so that we can just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and have awesome youth programs and all these things that we like to have because we just want to be comfortable and awesome, but we should send these people away and then we should train more men and we should send them away and the pulpits in our city and across the lands should be filled with young men who have a fire in their bones and who are ready to endure everything for the sake of the elect and all of the people that may not be called into that particular type of proclamation ministry should want to give everything all of their talents and their times and treasures to help to send that great cause to happen and then I end with this Finally, the implication personally is that we should rejoice because Christ, our mediator, has reconciled us to God. There is one mediator, verse 5, and there, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Implicit in that verse is the clear idea that we all have a major problem as we are born into humanity. And that problem is that we are by nature enemies of God. And God's judgment and righteous wrath is barreling down upon us. And there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to stop that or divert it or avoid it. It's an inevitability. And the glory of this verse says that Christ, God the Son, perfect, the perfect man, fully man, fully God, has become our mediator, our go-between, to plead God's cause to us so that we might turn and trust in Him, so that we might turn away from trusting in ourselves and put our hope in Him, and then He might plead our cause to God. Do you see that? Christ is this mediator between a holy, righteous God and a sinful people who are lost in their rebellion. And Jesus, fully man, fully God, bears the wrath of God, turns that wrath into God's grace and favor and reconciles, as Reuben read for us at the beginning of the service, reconciles a holy God with a dreadfully sinful people and brings them together, makes them alive, gives them a new heart so that they can put their faith in him through no work or merit of their own and accomplishes the very thing that they need most, which is reconciliation with the holy God. Friends, when you see that, when you see it afresh, even if you've known it and trusted in it for years, it should cause you to rejoice and worship God more passionately. That song we sang, the second song, put it up there. In fact, what is that? Jesus is alive. It was the second song we gave. Just look at the words again. Josiah, if you can put that up there. The Jesus, the second song we sang, if you can give me those words. There is a reason why the curse of sin is broken. There's a reason why the darkness runs from light. There's a reason. There's a reason why we stand here. Now, I wonder what Brad's preaching on. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I got to get out. This guy over here is I don't like him. There's a reason why we now stand forgiven. Jesus is alive. Next slide. 
There's a reason why we're not overtaken. I wonder what my wife cooked for lunch. Where are we going? Eh, shouldn't have come today. I same thing every week. There's a reason why we sing on. I saw some of you sang that song this morning. There's a reason why you're breathing right now. There's a reason why you're even alive. If you're trusting in Christ, there's a reason for that. And it's not because you're smarter than the kid down the block. It's because God in his kindness gave you what you did not have. He gave you grace. Ephesians 2 says he made you alive because of his mercy which was rich towards you. And he did this. So that you would be part of a group of people who the same thing has happened to. So that they would gather together this, what's the word again? This ridiculously flawed group of people. So that through us, we might link arms and worship God in such a way that he would be clearly the treasure of our lives. So that through the way we live together and worship and respond to him, he would use our lives together to be a kind of display to an onlooking world for the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. That's the reason why you are alive. Let's respond. Father, as we now come and see and seize and behold this glorious truth, do your work among us. Plant the seed for service to the gospel vocationally into foreign missions locally in the lives of people this morning. Call them out of self-absorption and into giving their lives away. Stir up confidence and gospel-centeredness in the life of a tired young mother this morning. Reorient a selfish husband towards his real mission, not himself and his needs, but the glory of God in the life of his family. Put courage and steel in the spine of a young soldier who's in a dark place that is deadening his soul and let him see that you have put him there for the sake of your mission amongst all types of people, even the most wicked of soldiers. Reorient us us as a church, God, and let us be radically gospel-centered. Let us resist the comfortable impulses of making it about ourselves and let us be the type of place the ridiculously flawed type of place that in spite of our flaws, you use as a sending grounds, as a place where you birth missions and ministry, not just to the city, but to the nations, all for the glory of God. And what a joy to be part of that type of community. Lord, may it be so. Because... That is the reason we are alive. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. I pray these things in your name. Amen.